Hello again, Strange New Worlds listeners. This is Mike Wong, your host, and today we are returning to the realm of social science as I bring you a special conversation with Daesun Oka. Longtime listeners may remember Daesun from episodes 6 and 7 of Strange New Worlds entitled History is a Lie, parts 1 and 2. Now, because he's a historian, Daesun is always attuned to different aspects of things than me. He's way more adept at noticing the social, geopolitical, and racial aspects of Star Trek. And when I visited him up in the Bay Area last week, he shared some of his brilliant insights on the first season of Star Trek Discovery. So hey everyone, I'm sitting here in one of Stanford's dining halls across from my best friend Desun. So if you hear a lot of chatter around or clinks of silverware on glasses, that's what's happening. We've, we're trying a new location, strange new worlds on the road. I'm actually up in the Bay Area for a Caltech fundraising event and of course couldn't resist the opportunity to come see Desun. So we're hanging out at Stanford, which is the university in the town that we grew up, grew up in. Yeah, it's great. Great to see you, Michael. Yeah, I'm so happy that we could record a little chat Indeed. for this podcast. Totally, yeah. So Desun, I haven't spoken to you since the end of Star Trek Discovery. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god, it was amazing. I, I like thought the show um, it like totally picked up, and I was just actually watching a deleted scene that was part of the last episode. I think I sent it to you. Describe the scene yeah, for so the listeners. The scene was, um, I think, an agent. You're not really sure who this agent is, but a Trill agent walks into a den in Klingon, which is run by... Um, yeah, Uncronus, right. Which is run by the Emperor, right? Mm-hmm. You know, she ran, so she's like kind of like down on, the lo- down on the rugs. She's like not doing the greatest. She's running a den, and then she's approached by this Trill agent, and you're not really sure who this Trill person is. But then the emperor was like, you don't, you don't walk or talk like a trill. And the agent was like, yeah, you're right. And then he deactivates, you know, his trill markings and it reveals that dun dun dun, he's human, right? So they have a little chat. And then the emperor was like, oh, you're part of Starfleet, aren't you? And the agent was saying, no, I'm not. I'm actually above Starfleet. I'm something else besides Starfleet. And then he, you know, introduces himself actually as a Section 31 agent. And, you know, he gives the Emperor an offer, you know, join us. And he leaves the Emperor with um, a black combat we've seen in previous episodes of Star Trek Discovery. So we finally know that this is, a, the black combat is actually a Section 31 combat. So that is finally what the black badges are for. Because yeah. we were wondering that, right? We were left that in the third episode of Star Trek Discovery. They walk onto the USS Discovery the convicts, right? They come out of the shuttle bay, and one of the convicts notices the black badges. Have you ever seen a black badge before? Mm-hmm. And then that was it. Like, we right. never saw a black badge. None of the important characters wore black badges. Yeah. And that was it. It was it, yep. So this deleted scene mm-hmm. explains that. Right. Wow. Yeah, and I think that's pretty brilliant. Just, you know, Section 31 just recruiting literally a fascist right fascist emperor to its organization and just i think just goes to show how far section 31 is willing to go to so and it was it was a great continuity tie with enterprise 
and um, the rest of the Star Trek universe because I think um, you know it shows that Section Thirty One you know has sort of been surviving since Enterprise Day and is very well and active. Yeah, I initially thought that maybe Discovery was a Section 31 ship, given its very secret mission and its very experimental, almost unethical technology. Yeah. And then that never really came up again. Or sorry, it never came up at all. Which is curious to me, because if Section 31 officers were really on the ship from the beginning, like, why didn't they sort of take things into their own hands when, like, the Mirror Universe was entered? You right. know, like, Lorca takes them to the Mirror Universe... Shouldn't the Section 31 officers maybe, like, try to band together and then, like, notify their Section yeah. 31 leader about right. this really strange development? Yeah, um, yeah. But, of course, since we're following Michael Burnham's story, I suppose that just never happened in front of our eyes, if it happened at all. Right, and I think that's, like, very interesting, too, because it shows, like, the extent that Section 31 can or does become involved with kind of, like, Starfleet business. Because, like, why didn't Section 31 intervene? You know, who knows? I'm, we can very well believe that Section 31 knew what was going on, but they chose not to intervene. Or they couldn't intervene because, like, it would expose them too much to Starfleet. But that said, they definitely knew that the Emperor was back. So I thought this was interesting, too, because we assumed that this conversation of the Emperor being back in the Prime Universe was kept between Discovery and the Admiral, Admiral Cornwall, right? But then how does Section 31 know that the Emperor was back? So that just demonstrates kind of the reach of Section 31. So they said, a lot of elements in Star Trek are allegorical reflections for real-life things. Is Section 31 just, it's very obvious, like, oh, if the CIA were more powerful and mm-hmm. had, like, special technology that the rest of us don't have? Or, yeah, yeah. And, and if they were truly trying to run things, this is what might happen. Should I take that at face value? Or do you think Section 31 is, like, expressing or reflecting some other state of the human condition? Yeah, I'm I'm not really sure. I think um, what made me curious about Section 31 is, like, is Section 31 an accident of the Federation or is it integral to the Federation? And so would the Federation be able to survive without Section 31? And I, I think that's a really interesting question. I think that Star Trek never really explains that. You know, Section 31 is always there, but because it's always there, we kind of are led to believe that the Federation can't exist without Section 31. Allegorically speaking, I think like we also can ask the same question. Can nation states, governments, and institutions, public institutions survive without like clandestine institutions backing them up mm. you know and so I think that's a really interesting question to ponder and and ask also too you know the relationship between the public and the clandestine like are they in opposition with each other or does the public life and institution exist because there's a clandestine you know and so I, I wonder you know are these actually two constituting components of each other that they can't survive without each other or are they actually, you know, in opposition with each other? It's really interesting, this yeah. dark side of the Federation, because yeah. the Federation is supposed to be this very idyllic yeah, utopia. Yeah, yeah. And yet, it has <clears throat> Section 31. And just like you said, you want to ask the question, yeah. is Section 31 a blight upon the Federation, like the dark shadow forces that we couldn't quite stamp out completely? Or... Is it a commentary on how the darkness within us, not just within our 
own individual selves, but within our collective society as an organization, is Section 31 actually doing the parts or fulfilling the niches of necessity that normal people don't want to deal with or see, but are actually integral to the survival yeah. of the rest of the utopia of prosperity. Yeah, absolutely. If we think of the Federation as a structure, we have to also think like, is this structure only able to survive because there's like a, a foundation, a dark foundation, you know? Or maybe one of its foundations is pretty dark. Whenever there is a clandestine institution supporting another institution, that also kind of makes us look at the structure and ask, is this structure actually built on like a hierarchical inequality? Because if the institution was shared evenly across all citizens, you know, there wouldn't be a secretive institution. But the institution creates people who are to be governed and to govern. And that in itself is kind of like a hierarchical structure, which lends itself to spaces where secrecy can happen. You know, I think secrecy exists because there's a structure that kind of casts a shadow, you see. That institution and culture of public life casts a shadow in which kind of organizations like Section 31 is allowed to exist. So I think, you know, Section 31 is, is a good way to explore inequality in Federation, structure within Federation. That's yeah. really, really interesting that yeah. you brought up, that inequality is not necessarily the standard sort of rungs on a ladder mm. type of thing, where everything is in plain sight and you can see directly who's above you and who's beneath you mm. on this social ladder or economic ladder mm. or whatever it happens to be mm. but there's also an inequality that is dictated by having a clandestine organization yeah. who yeah. is in the shadows and who is not in the shadows and right. there is certain power that is given to somebody who is not in the shadows because they can be outwardly influential upon others but then there's a certain other type of power that is given to somebody who's in the shadows yeah. because they can manipulate people without them necessarily knowing. Right. And then I think also the power to manipulate, the shadow has a relationship with the structure that casts the shadow, right? Mm. So in other words, you know, Section 31 is able to have power, but that power is created by the public, by the public life, by the front-facing institutions that distributes power. And so there's kind of has a relationship between the structure, the public structure of the Federation, Starfleet, and the Council, and then Section 31. Section 31 can't operate without the structure of the Federation, in the That's same true. way that the CIA can't operate without the structure of the federal government. Right. You know, despite all the front-facing agencies the federal government has. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it's interesting, like, how illegitimacy of, you know, clandestine and shadow organizations are actually granted actual legitimacy by public institutions. Yeah. And it seems like all major powers, at least in the Alpha Beta Quadrants, uh, have such a clandestine institution. Yeah. I guess the most famous other ones would be the Tal Shiar of the Romulan Star Empire yeah. and the Obsidian Order of the Cardassian Union. But in Star Trek Discovery, we also discovered that there is a house of spies in the Klingon Empire, the oh, one that Lorel yeah, is right, from. Right. Mm -hmm. That was really curious to me. I love learning more about the Klingons mm -hmm. in Star Trek Discovery, and I wish actually we got a little bit more of their backstories. Yeah. But it was cool, or at least puzzling at first, to see a house of spies in the Klingon yeah. Empire, because that is not something I associate with being 
Klingon-y right, because they're exactly. usually very honorable and they're usually very like upfront and blunt about what right. they are doing. Absolutely, yeah. The beginning of the series, its title was The Battle of the Binary Stars, right? Yeah. And so I think that's a metaphor for the Federation and Klingon, right? Well, mind blown. I did not even see that coming. Yeah. Really? I oh really do. Goodness. And I think that name of the episode was setting the stage, I think, for the rest of the series. In that, we see these episodes progressing. And the Klingon the Federation are kind of mirroring each other. They constitute each other. The struggle between them defines each other. See, and I think that's in very similar ways where two binary stars, they constitute each other. One, one of the binary stars characteristics and components and properties don't exist without the presence of the other binary star pulling against it. And I think this is like a total metaphor for the Klingon and Federation. You see the Federation, are their, their values are being challenged, the Klingon's values are being challenged. We see this during the exchange at the prison cell within Admiral Cromwell and Laurel. And likewise, we see shadow organizations respective to the two empires or the two civilizations like Section 31 to the Federation and the House of Spices to the Klingons. And this conflict kind of brings out the dynamics between the clandestine and the front-facing institution in both societies. Someone has just started playing the piano, so I hope this doesn't ruin our audio. But uh, I think I think we're good for now. We're good for now. Yeah, yeah. that person left. <laughs> <laughs> that was short-lived. <coughs> yeah. um, no, Desun, that was brilliant. I have seen all of Star Trek Discovery, at least each episode twice through, mm -hmm. most of them three or four times, and it never occurred to me that the binary stars were literal metaphors yeah. for the things that were battling at them, the Federation versus the Klingons. Yeah. And you're totally right that it is the relationship between the Federation and the Klingon Empire that defines so much of what each other is. Right. I mean, that's just, that's just, that's just brilliant. And in the, in the metaphor, again, like you said, works into the astrophysical realm where it's not a binary star system if one star doesn't have the other. Yeah, the properties of one star are defined by the gravitational push and pull of the other star. And these stars, you know, they were forming. This is actually what sparked me to start this podcast. I, I don't know if I've, I've told you this particular story before, but when I saw the two binary stars or the binary protoplanetary disks in the trailer of Star Trek Discovery over the mm. summer of 2017, I thought this is such a beautiful image where so much amazing science is being depicted in this image mm, and nobody's yeah. talking about it. So I want to start a science and Star Trek podcast. Yeah. And this is it. And oh, wow. It, yeah. I love how it just comes full circle now because Yes, absolutely. The fact that there is another star and another system forming right next to a second star with a second planetary system totally dictates the end result of those two processes once yeah. they're finally formed. Absolutely, yeah. And this is like a prequel to the original series, so it's like the Federation is forming itself or at least a younger version of the Federation is moving towards the Federation that we know and love in the original series, and same with the Klingon Empire. Right. So when we had you on the podcast last, mm -hmm. you spoke about teleology yeah. and the sort of history that we see in the Federation mapped onto our brains through the storytelling of Star Trek. Yeah, absolutely. And how you wanted Star Trek Discovery to address this gap between Star Trek Enterprise and Star Trek the original series mm -hmm. for which we have no idea actually what happened. Mm -hmm. We just extrapolate from the two exactly, sets of exactly. data that we have and you wanted it to actually really fill in that gap and challenge our notions of what we quote unquote remember 
of what the Federation is and how it grows. Oh, yeah. Tell me about what you wanted to see and what you actually saw in the first season of Star Trek yeah, Discovery. So, right, so we assume that if the original series represented peak Federation and peak prosperity, and in the middle was Enterprise when that prosperity was just growing, and then in the beginning was like the first contact when the Federation or when Earth was at its lowest. And so we just assumed that Earth was just getting better and better and better until it reached peak prosperity during the original series. What I said I wanted to see with Discovery was like, was it really an upward path to prosperity? Was there kind of these moments of fluctuations and like tension? Star Trek Discovery actually it shows um, that no, it wasn't just an uphill climb. It was just surprising to see that the Federation was almost about to be destroyed 10 years before the original series. Right. During that time period, what were some of the aspects of the Federation that completely changed from Discovery to the original series? And I wonder, you know, did the Cleon War actually further entrench Section 31 into Federation institutions? You're totally onto something here where we were given the circumstances of the Federation's birth out of turmoil in Star Trek Enterprise. Yeah, yeah. And then we were given this very like happy-go-lucky, everything is dandy, we're just exploring the universe, dropping around like cowboys in space sort of thing in the original mm -hmm. series. Right. And how did we go from point A to point B? And in our minds, we just assumed, like you said, it was this uphill monotonic climb. Yeah. But then Star Trek Discovery shares with us that, oh, really, actually, there was quite a bit of turmoil right. right before the original series. It wasn't all, oh, we're basically utopia now. Right. It's like we saw, you know, Vulcan logic extremists challenging the Federation. Oh, that was weird, huh? Yeah, that was a little hot second right there. We saw the resurgence of Section 31, you know, the Federation being almost destroyed. And then suddenly we're led to believe 10 years later that the Federation is in peak prosperity. And so, yeah, the discovery really does kind of like makes us look at our assumptions that the original series gave us about the Federation. Challenge to the narratives that we thought was the Federation. And that's like really interesting. So, Disan, yeah. how did you feel when you saw the Enterprise oh, yeah. warp yeah. in? That was, oh, that was really cool. Like, I was like, of course I had the questions about like, will Michael Burnham meet Spock, you know? Because Spock was asked to be on the Enterprise during that time, right? So I felt pretty amazed. And again, I think teleologically on a personal level, this changes a lot about the chronology of Spock. Like, why did Spock never mention Burnham in the original series or his encounter with the Discovery? So I think just like interesting seeing how Spock's own personal history will be justified from this encounter. Yeah, so yeah. you definitely hope we see Spock and Absolutely. so do I. I. I hope so. And I, I hope that Zachary Quinto comes and plays I Spock. Hope. You know, I hope uh, it's not like conveniently on shore leave, right? I don't know if you've heard the rumors, but... No, what? So, <clears throat> the intellectual property of Star Trek mm -hmm. is sort of split between CBS and Viacom. Okay. And CBS owns the rights to make Star Trek TV shows. Okay. And Viacom, which owns Paramount, owns the right to make Star Trek movies. Got so, it. technically, the Kelvin timeline... Zachary Quinto, Chris Pine, mm. John Cho, Zoe Saldana, all those people in that little bubble are like separate corporate legal entities from <laughs> the Star Trek Discovery world. Yeah, so it's like yeah. almost impossible for Zachary Quinto, say, to like just appear as Spock in 
Star Trek Discovery. Mm-hmm. But the rumors have been flying that Viacom and CBS are like having oh talks about a merger. Oh my goodness. And, oh my you know, goodness, the yeah. only, I don't really care, honestly, if CBS and Viacom merge, other than the fact that it would allow, maybe, yeah. Zachary Quinto to come and play Spock. This is when monopolies um, are good. <laughs> Continuities are tied together. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So look out for that news because I think they are talking about it and wow. negotiating it. The, the merger, The right? merger, okay, yeah. yeah. And who knows how big of a role. Absolutely, The fact yeah. that if they merged, then maybe Zachary Quinto could play Spock and Star Trek Discovery is actually absolutely. taking place. Maybe the CEOs of these companies just absolutely don't care. Or yeah. maybe this is a big talking point for them. Absolutely. I don't know. I kind of want to ask one of these people who are in charge now. But I also want to grab one of the writers from Star Trek Discovery and ask them about the binary stars. Yeah. And be like, hey... My friend thinks that this is a metaphor, like a literal metaphor for the Klingon Empire. Oh, and you should. Can you Federation. tweet that, Michael? Can I, tweet? Like, I okay. Yeah, you I'll just tweet. That. That. I'm, I'm going to tweet it. I'm okay. Tweet. You'll, you'll see it yes, on the Twitter. Yeah. I yeah. think this entire series is going to be a metaphor of Klingon Federation defining themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think we even see this kind of play out in the movie in Star Trek Into Darkness, where we see Section Thirty One again building this mega ship. But this mega ship was like built because of the threat of the Klingons, right? That this Section Thirty One Admiral Commission. You know that ship, <clears throat> the Vengeance yeah, the in Vengeance, Into Darkness. Right. It had weird gaps in its saucer section, uh-huh. just like the this USS is, Discovery yeah, does. Okay. So there's like a little bit of architectural similarity between those two Section Thirty One. Honestly, Section 31 is going to take over the Discovery. This is going to take over the Discovery. There's going to be conflict within the crew. Michael Burnham will find it unethical. But then Section 31, along with its history and its narratives, are just going to be absorbed and put into the clandestine and the shadows, along with the rest of Section 31. Yeah. I think that's probably how it will play out in like future seasons. Okay, so that's my speculation. I, I hope so. There's a lot of moral gray zones to be played with here and those are some of the most interesting stories like that Deep Space Nine episode in the pale moonlight where Cisco has to like Cisco has to learn how to like live with the murder of somebody in order to drag the Romulans into the war to defeat the Dominion and prolong the existence of the Federation sometimes you have to do unethical things to get the results that are overall good and beneficial for the society that you're in yeah and like Michael Burnham, who had this whole story arc in the first season of making mistakes and then learning the high ground of morality, in quotes, and then choosing the Starfleet way, this Starfleet moral high ground at the very end of the first season and sort of becoming this very pure person as a result, if she gets challenged by Section 31 in the future, like yeah. you said, she's probably going to find it objectionable, yeah. right? What Section 31 is all about. But then if she finds herself in a situation where she needs to use Section 31 or Section 31 tactics mm. to do what is quote-unquote right, yeah. that'll be another really big, important, growing moment in her life. It arc. would, it would. And then just like, when she was presented the Golden Combat, and then how that just like mirrors when Section 31 Asian presented the Black Combat to the Emperor, it was just like... Okay, this is really obvious here. Like. You're really good at the, finding these symmetries. Yeah. It's, it's, so yeah, I think Burnham is also like, she herself is a symmetry. She's like, 
former criminal with Starfleet values and half Vulcan, half human. And she is a symmetry within the Federation and it's Federation 2 Klingons and how she's in love with like a Klingon human. And so, yeah, I think this whole series is just about symmetries, really. That's yeah. pretty amazing. I love yeah. that insight. Yeah. You know, speaking of Star Trek Into Darkness, it definitely wasn't my favorite Star Trek movie. Yeah, yeah. And this may be because I thought it was going to be about something that it wasn't. I thought that Star Trek Into Darkness was going to talk about the morality of sometimes needing to do the ugly or unethical thing to preserve prosperity and utopia. Mm -hmm. I thought it was going to be about this because in the trailer, mm -hmm. John Harrison, <laughs> John Harrison. <laughs> who's Khan, yeah, 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 we all know yeah, yeah. is Khan now, but they were being really stupidly sneaky about it and calling him John Harrison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Benedict. <laughs> yeah, but it, good old Benedict. Yeah. In the trailer, he utters this line, you think you're safe, but you're not. Yeah. And I really thought that was speaking about the Federation, how this very idyllic culture. If you're just a normal citizen in the Federation, right? You're not a Starfleet officer. You're not gallivanting around the cosmos, getting yourself into trouble, into strange situations with aliens on other planets or wandering into other dimensions, risking your life. You're just a normal citizen on Earth. Oh my God, that's like the best place to live, mm -hmm. right? You think you're safe. Nothing can touch you. You have this giant military out there, the Starfleet, that will intercept anything hazardous that is coming your way. You live on a world where there's no hunger, no homelessness, no inequality, ostensibly. What a great place to live. And then John Harrison comes in and he shows the ordinary Federation citizen that you think you're safe, but there's a price to pay for all of the things that you enjoy in the bright sunlight of the outside world. And that is the darkness into darkness and I thought it was like I had oh, <laughs> understood yeah, the movie yeah, yeah. before it came out yeah, and then it was not about that mm -hmm. it was not about that at all yeah. and so maybe that's why I hate Star Trek Into Darkness there are other reasons why I don't like Star Trek Into Darkness but um but that was <laughs> yeah it just <laughs> turned into like Khan is evil Khan is yeah exactly Khan right. is evil he loves his family oh yeah family yeah, Fa family one. and um, it was a really big Kirk story too learning about no win scenarios okay, yeah. um, and like him having to sacrifice himself in the engineering room right, right. Uh, and then it also had elements of like Star Trek 6 the undiscovered country about militarizing the Federation okay. it felt like somebody like mashed up Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan with Star Trek okay, 6, I, no, The Undiscovered yeah, Country. Yeah, that's actually really true. And then I was like, oh, but I've seen those two movies already. Anyhow, I don't want to harp on Into Darkness yeah. too much because... But I, what you were saying about Into Darkness, I, I hope they like talk about that in Star Trek Discovery, you know. Burnham is the perfect vessel to do that. Former criminal, has a relationship with Klingons, and has a mother figure who is an emperor living in the universe. Like, she is that person to really explore questions about the darkness that the Federation casts. Mm -hmm. Well, listen, you've gotten me so excited for season two I of Star Trek Discovery. So excited. I mean, if I weren't excited before, now I am through the roof excited. You. It's always a pleasure to talk to you about oh anything, but especially Star Trek. Yeah. And I feel like that's 
one big reason why our friendship has I know. lasted so long. Oh, I'm so excited, Michael. Like, <laughs> we are going to freak out. <laughs> yes. That concludes episode 35 of Strange New Worlds. To summarize, Daesun made three excellent points. First, just as a building must cast a shadow, any social structure, like a government, no matter how optimistic or utopian, will naturally create niches where clandestine organizations can form and operate. It's inescapable. How necessary are these secret services to the survival of the front-facing institutions? That question is hard to answer, but it's almost certain that in times of great need, they will do whatever is necessary to protect the institutions that allow them to exist. Second, the binary stars where the Federation fleet first battled the recently reunited Klingons were a metaphor for the Federation and Klingon Empire, how their formation is dictated by each other, how their identities are intrinsically intertwined. I don't know how I didn't see this before. It seems so obvious now. And finally, that Michael Burnham is the perfect vessel through which to explore the morality of Section 31 and the evolving relationship between the Federation and the Klingon Empire. As they soon said, she is full of contradictions, a former convict in a Starfleet uniform, a human raised on Vulcan, a Federation citizen who fell in love with a Klingon. Talking to Daesun reminds me of just how beautiful and wide the Star Trek universe is. It's not just about setting foot on new planets. It's about exploring what we already have, our humanity, the multitudes we contain within ourselves, and the forces that bind people together and push people apart. Star Trek has definitely been a binding force when it comes to Desun and me, who have been friends for over 20 years. I hope that you enjoyed our conversation as much as I did. Until next time, see you out there. I'm just a little shook that that's how my voice sounds. You know, whenever you always hear your voice, you know what I mean? Like, being played back to you. Yeah. I was like, wow, do I sound like that? You sound like that. Yeah. So Aren't you ever, ever surprised amazing. that that happens too? Your voice you. is just, you could be saying anything. I should be dream. an audiobook, like narrator. That should be my next temp gig, to be a narrator for like Audible Amazon. <laughs> I should like narrate Star Trek books, Michael. Oh my God. <laughs> hey son. You could. You could totally do that. That actually sounds like a great job. I want to actually be amazing. I want to. I want to narrate Star Trek books. I think you totally. Yeah. See what you can do. Audio book narrator for Star Trek. Yeah, I would put that on my resume. Can I just read Mike and Denise Okuda's Star Trek encyclopedia, entry by entry? Yeah. Can I just do that? Will somebody pay me to do that? Yeah, 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 exactly. Remember that Star Trek magazine? Yeah.
it I had like these technical briefings yeah, in them. Yeah, yeah, I remember. I would read those late at night uh, when I was a I kid. Know. I would exactly. totally go back to. I still have all of them. I would just open them up yeah. and like read them aloud you for should. the podcast. I would do that for this podcast. You honestly should like a special, like a Christmas special. You know, <laughs> just read your magazines. <laughs> I wonder if I will get in trouble because like that's got to be copyrighted like Michael if you get in trouble you should be honored that's a sign that like the Star Trek producers are like listening to your show it's like oh you're suing me I'm noticed <laughs> 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 exactly